Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. New Mancast for you on this Tuesday, the 6th of April. And Tom, we should just take a moment first to uh, note that this is the three-year anniversary of the horrific Humboldt Broncos bus crash. Mm -hmm. Uh, We think of the survivors. We certainly think of those that perished. I remember I was in Edmonton. It was the day after the Sedin's final home game and the day before their final National Hockey League game. And uh, I remember being in Edmonton around the dinner hour as uh, word was starting to circulate that there had been this tragedy. We didn't know the full details. And then you can imagine the mood at the rink on the Saturday morning, final game of the regular season, final game for the Sedin's. And yet that was all the talk as it should have been. And so uh, somber, somber moments, certainly. And uh, we reflect on those and, and, you know, there are times that hockey teams are involved in stories that are news stories, and that clearly was one. And and really, I think we're at a point in time now with the Canucks, the team that we cover and that we focus on here on the VanCast, that they haven't played in a while, they're not going to play for a while. Anything to do with the Canucks now falls into the news category instead of uh, just a hockey team that's battling, you know, through something. Uh, it's yeah. getting serious, and, and you hope that... Uh, we're working our way towards the end of the worst of this, but I mean, as you understand it, what is the latest as we record this on this Tuesday morning? Yeah, there's an additional positive test from Monday's round of testing. Um, you know, I, I believe that there's an additional support staffer that's sort of in that gray area where they need to be tested again to, to confirm. Um, so, you know, this this outbreak is still. Uh, growing, although it's also slowing, right? The, the, the cases, the new cases added plateaued over the weekend. Uh, we're now at one on Monday's round of testing and one at Sunday's round of testing. And hopefully in the next 48 hours, the Canucks will go two separate rounds of testing without having added or produced an additional positive. That, that's got to be the hope. Uh, you know, until that happens, I don't see how, and I don't expect the NHL to move forward with, you know, a, an additional announcement on the schedule. Um, and I don't know that the Canucks are going to be or should be expected to call up guys or figure out exactly what's next for their club either, uh, you know, just until this outbreak is actually contained, which to this point, it's not. Now, I'd add too that Monday's round of testing, if you've now tested negative through Monday, uh, it's been five negatives since your last exposure on the Wednesday, the Wednesday morning skate. So that should be a good indication. But man, what a... You know, what a ghastly situation. Like, this is a catastrophic sort of failure to keep the Canucks 
facility safe. And, and I use catastrophic failure in a way that I don't want to fall into some of the sports media traps uh, of pointing fingers at like who's responsible, right? Like the NHL protocols are in place. The Canucks followed them. And nonetheless, this P1 variant, and that's an assumption, a working assumption from the Canucks and the NHL. It's not confirmed and sequenced yet, but uh, ripped through the team nonetheless in 24 hours, uh, 48 hours, really, for between two morning skates uh, or a practice on Tuesday and a morning skate on Wednesday of last week. Uh, you know, I think there's two real things that I want to make sure we we do on this podcast. And one is situate what happened with the Canucks to, you know, be something that's not in isolation, but is very much a part of our community and the risk factors that we're all dealing with, especially in Vancouver at the moment, as cases rise and the P1 appears to be spreading. And the second thing is to reemphasize for everyone that, you know, this is a cross-section of the fittest and youngest within our community, and they are sick as a result of this. They caught it despite being within a strict protocol, uh, you know, working for a company with a massive PPE budget and within a daily testing regimen, and still it spread really quickly. And, you know, anyone minimizing symptoms will, you know, like there's a ton of stuff that we're hearing and that I'm hearing that falls within medical privacy and that I'm not going to disclose. Uh, but anyone minimizing the symptoms that these athletes are facing is out to lunch and that's going to be made more apparent in the weeks ahead. Uh, that said, you know, no one's, my understanding is Canucks medical staff have not been like sounding the alarm bells about imminent hospitalizations, but this group of athletes is been very sick and, you know, the understanding and figuring out what that means for this club going forward, like that's going to take months uh, to sort of sift through. Uh, this is a serious thing. It's a serious thing our community is going through, and it's a very serious thing that the Canucks organization has been impacted by. Um, and our thoughts are with everyone affected and their families at the moment. Right. And to that point, uh, you know, Adam Gaudet was hauled off the ice at practice a week ago. A lot of focus mm -hmm. on him. We saw his wife took to Twitter and basically gave an update. Uh, we haven't heard from the players themselves, so a fair bit of anecdotal uh, evidence about how it's impacted. And, and Adam Gadet's wife said that you know he wasn't feeling well, that uh, it had hit him. I saw Zach McEwen's girlfriend uh, yesterday took to Twitter. Uh, she thought that she would test positive. She hadn't yet, but she said she felt like she'd been hit by a truck. And you know, this is a woman in her twenties, I would assume. Uh, Zach's in his mid-20s. So, you know, again, there's evidence of sort of uh, how it's impacting. Brandon Sutter is a little older. He's in his 30s. But his dad, Brent, uh, was quoted in Sportsnet, they're on Sportsnet's website, said that, you know, Brandon has basically been banished to the basement at his home to quarantine. And he's got his pregnant wife upstairs. They already have two young kids. And now uh, here's Brandon, who you know, a good family man, but he can't. I mean, he's got to separate for, for his sake, but for their sake as well. And now he's got his pregnant wife who's running around trying to look after two toddlers. Like, that's not easy. Uh, you know, th these are human beings first. Like, we look at them as hockey players. You and I cover them as hockey players, but it's in these moments that, you know, you're reminded. You're And, and you have to be. 
that it doesn't matter how much money Brandon Sutter makes. Like We could all agree that he's overpaid for his contributions to the Vancouver Canucks, but all of the money that he's making this year uh, doesn't make his COVID situation any better. He can't hire help for his wife to look after their other kids because nobody can be in their house. You know, like they're human beings. And what they're going through sounds like hell. And you wouldn't wish it upon anybody. So I, I, I hope that we're at a point in time. I think it settled down a little bit on social media. But early on, there was a suck it up and play sort of thing that people want their, their entertainment. And look, we want hockey back too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I want to cover the Vancouver Canucks when they're playing games. But uh, I think we now understand sort of the severity of this situation that this organization is facing. And, you know, I was thinking yesterday when Nils Hoaglander was the latest guy named and added to the list. Like, what an experience. It'll be really curious 20 years from now when he looks back at his rookie season in the National Hockey League. Like, you you know, you grow up dreaming of playing in the NHL, and here's this 20-year-old far-from-home learning the ropes of life away from home and in the NHL, and yet he really hasn't experienced the NHL at all. Empty buildings, one division, same opponents, you know, all these protocols, and now this. He finds himself on the COVID list. So like, there's a big, wide world of NHL hockey out there for Niels Hoaglander to still explore somewhere down the line, but, you know, it's, it's going to be a while before he, he plays, you know, Madison Square or... Uh, you know, pick a ring, doesn't, outside of Canada, like, he, he hadn't, he barely scratched the surface of what life is truly like in the National Hockey League. Yeah, and as, as the weeks unfold, I think we'll get more individual perspectives, and, you know, you, you think about guys like Tyler Myers and Travis Hamannick, who for family reasons have had a very conservative approach to their own decisions and level of risk throughout this pandemic to this point, and then they contract the illness at work, Right. Um, you know, and, and again, I I think the thing, I think any finger pointing is, is misplaced. Like this is a public health crisis and the Canucks are more than anything reflective of a heightened level of risk that we're dealing with locally in a community that's widely unvaccinated and that has a ton of P1 uh, isolated at local hospitals and local sequencing, uh, sort of facilities. So, you know, I, I just hope that everyone listening to this podcast is taking this seriously looks to some of these players and we, and we know these players so well in terms of like, we know the names of their dogs and, you know, we follow them on social media and we watch them regularly and, you know, analyze their quotes and break down their games. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully if any good can come out of that, it's that, you know, cause it is an awful situation, but if any good can come out of it, I, I do hope that anyone listening, anyone following this team anyone considering what this club has gone through over the course of a hellish week sort of stops, reflects, and considers that, you know, if if these guys can get it, if it spreads like this in their workplace, and if, you know, they actually feel symptoms considering, you know, their Adonis-like physiques, uh, what does that mean for me, regular Joe with a paunch, right? Uh, I, I I do hope that this can at least be used to underscore and underline the need for continued vigilance, even though we are at week 58 of this pandemic locally and our patience, I think for, you know, continued lockdowns is minimal. Um, At the moment anyway, it's still necessary to be very cautious in our individual behaviors as we look to safeguard, you know, ourselves, our families and our community. 
Well, I'm looking forward to getting Justin McElroy from the CBC on here in a sec. Uh, he's been, you know, one of the, the movers and shakers when it comes to COVID coverage in this province. So we'll get his thoughts on this situation, sort of the way it's been handled and maybe the way that, uh, you know, the Canucks can try to use their position in the community to to help drive home. Uh, some of the things that we just talked about, about truly how devastating uh, this can all be. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Justin McElroy is the municipal affairs reporter for CBC here in Vancouver. But for the last year, he's been on the leading edge of COVID coverage in this province. Definitely stick handling through the data, posting his findings and observations on Twitter at J underscore McElroy. Now, Justin, as we bring you in here, we were talking yesterday, Thomas and I were, about uh, what we we're going to do on this podcast today. And he said, well, let's get McElroy on the podcast. He's been crushing COVID stories and he has Canuck takes. That made you the perfect guest for the VanCast. The, the Venn diagram of like five people in this city. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's just start because obviously this is a Canuck-related podcast. When you look at the outbreak around Rogers Arena and the life that that story has taken on on its own, do you look at that as an individual story or do you look at it as sort of a, a subplot to the broader story in this province with where we are, 4,000 cases over the long weekend, uh, the variant, the fact that uh, we look like we're in the third wave? Is it a story on its own or is it part of a, a bigger story in this province? Uh, I, I do think it, it's both, right? When you consider... Throughout the entire pandemic, it has been really difficult sometimes to get people's uh, attention about the concern about this virus because we can't see it. And more than that, mm -hmm. we aren't in hospitals being able to show cameras of people infected. It's very difficult to get people's attention with very visual things that they know and people that they know who are infected because of a host of privacy concerns. So when you have the most prominent organization, arguably in the province, full of young, fit people, suddenly having this virus and having it spread through virtually the entire t team in a week, that gets people's attention. And it really shows in a dramatic way for people having their hockey games taken away, just how serious this can be and the impacts that can have on a whole host of different types of people and different types of uh, industries. I mean, there are all sorts of privacy issues, although the NHL puts out a daily list and puts the players' names on it. We know that there are coaches that have been affected. We haven't heard from the coaching staff. And really, we've only heard from the Canuck organization once, and that was over the weekend, and it was a, a brief one-paragraph statement attributed to Jim Benning. Do you, just based on what you said, like, do you think the Canucks have a role in all of this to be a little more forthcoming with some details that could sort of speak to the province and maybe help with this recognition factor that what they're dealing with truly is, you know, a, a serious, serious situation? Uh, absolutely. Now, I think just given the sheer number of people involved and the fact that games are canceled, 
you know, for fairly indefinitely right now. We'll see if they're able to get this schedule underway. But it's made it impossible for them to hide it or say, well, you know, it's just one or two players and we've got this under control. It's clearly not. And that in its own while extremely uh, frustrating and causing tons of anxiety for everyone around the team, I'm sure, has its virtue in really signaling to people the consequences of it. That being said, there is more they could do. They could show just here are the days that testing happened, and here's how quickly it spread throughout the team. Here's uh, how it went from 1 to 6 to 12 people just like that. They could talk about what are incidents that may have happened that caused this, uh, that caused the virus to spread in the first place. They could even show, you know, photos of the locker room and different places that they've been in of showing, hey, here is the ventilation here. Here are the risks of what happened when you have uh, a bunch of uh, people that are in close contact all the time. Now, again, there's plenty of reasons to not do that and some of them are very fair and you can understand why uh, the Canucks wouldn't and you don't want to stigmatize one individual person and you don't want to necessarily put blame where you don't have firm evidence that it's because of this or that but they're in a unique position here where they have a large microphone and a captive audience particularly of young people who may not have been as focused on this virus as others over the past year to really show exactly how this transmits and how if it is variants involved how these can move much more fastly among a small community. Justin, first of all, I just want to thank you for your public service over the past year. It's been absolutely indispensable. And one thing I want to ask you about specifically is with the way that you've been so numbers focused, right? And and mm-hmm. the way that you've graphed this virus locally in a variety of different ways, how do you react to the potential that, you know, a wall of numbers, a thousand new cases added every day over the course of this long weekend in terms of an average, um, like that doesn't quite register for people necessarily the same way it does when you put a name like Bo Horvat, the Canucks captain, who's now on the COVID protocol list. Like that has a certain level of emotional resonance. Uh, How do you sort of look at that dynamic in terms of how our community is likely to react to this Canucks outbreak? Uh, I think it's in terms of getting people to listen to the message, it's helpful, right? Because what I always say during this is that the charts that I put out in the graphs and the analysis that I'm doing on a macro level, hopefully that's helping people. But I also understand that not everyone reacts to situations in the same way. And lots of people need those faces and they need someone that they feel that they can connect with and the problem Mm. for so much of this is that when we ask the government well can we go into hospitals and show people's faces and people that are dealing with the virus right now can we go into care homes even can we show can we talk to doctors even frontline doctors who are dealing with uh, this pandemic every day the answer so often is no uh and so it makes it very difficult to show human faces to all of British Columbia of, hey, this is someone with the virus and this is what can happen with them. When you suddenly have Bo Horvat, a person you know, when it suddenly people on Insta- Canucks on Instagram and family members of Canuck players on Instagram talking about this, talking in detail about what's going on, it brings a level of immediacy to it that a chart simply can't. And so it's helps to bring that extra medium, that extra element, that extra psychological sort of inference for people into the game here, especially 
given that there's still lots of questions of how quickly these variants will transmit and how dangerous they are to young people compared to original COVID. Yeah, and you know, we're used to looking to the Canucks and professional athletes generally as representing our community. And and I think sometimes we forget that also they reflect our community on an individual level. And in this Canucks outbreak and the working assumption, although not yet confirmed by the team, that this is the P1 variant that has ripped through their club, like, does that reflect a heightened level of, you know, risk for everyone in our community locally at the moment, uh, you know, as a result of the prevalence of P1, you know, based off the fact that, according to the Canadian press anyway, uh, we have more P1 isolated at St. Paul's than they do in the entire continental United States at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I mean, too, that uh, the United States is screening a minuscule amount of cases for variants. Well, we're mm-hmm. screening about 90% now, so you got to be it. careful about apples and oranges. But yeah, uh, it's a situation, to, certainly at this point, where people know that athletes are tested much more. People know that athletes have all of these health protocols in place for a billion-dollar organization that their small business probably doesn't have and probably can't uh, afford. People know that hockey players are amongst the fittest people in the entire world. So to see that the possibility of this can happen there, if this doesn't give you a wake-up call, I'm not sure what does, to be frank. And I guess, too, I mean, one of the big issues is it's what's to come. Like, these are elite-level athletes, as you said. You know, it's one thing to get sick, but we still don't know the long-term implications. We've heard anecdotal stories, uh, you know, people that had the virus a year ago that have been dealing with it for 12 months. But, you know, we don't know short term or long term the impact that this could have on these guys who have, let's be honest, I mean, they've got a, a short shelf life to maximize this career that they have been blessed with a skill set to play, you know, a sport at the highest level. But we don't know the impact that this is going to have on them moving forward. We don't. You know, we can say at this point, well, and most of this is pre-variance, but it's like if you get COVID and you're this age and you have no health conditions, you have about an X percent chance of going to the hospital, for example. We don't have really good data on, well, if you then get COVID, you have X percent chance of developing these long COVID conditions and all of them here, simply because governments aren't really tracking all that right now because they are busy with the immediate effects of the pandemic. So this is when you see people talk about how it's not worth the risk for the Canucks to continue the season. There's a lot of merit to that simply from the fact that it's going to be weeks and weeks, even after all these guys recover, of having a really good sense of did they avoid these symptoms? How are they going to be doing weeks, months from now? And is it worth that risk with all the gargantuan work that you're going to need to do about the, redoing the schedule, having these games come in, getting people's fitness back up for all these question marks that are still there? And again, you're not talking about one or two players. You're talking about an entire team. And there's not really a precedent for this in North American sport. We can't say, well, Mm -hmm. you know, the Miami Heat uh, did this and it worked out uh, this way, right? We have a few cases for baseball early on in the pandemic with seven or eight players. That's about it. I mean, the decision will be made at the league level and with the clubs and with consultation with medical officers and everything else. But just where do you stand on this notion of why bother playing another game this season if you're the Vancouver Canucks? 
I think you really have to consider what's the absolute best thing that could come out of that and what's the absolute worst. Uh, and within that, uh, what is a reasonable expectation here? And when you look at uh, the question marks we have around the variant still, when you look at the sheer number of players involved in this, adding to the risk for each one, when you look at the lack of knowledge that we do have at this point around variants and uh, the length of illness and long-haul symptoms, you really have to ask, what are you doing th this for? And look, obviously the Canucks have to make their decision. The, the, the NHL has to make their decision. There's a lot of different factors here. But it seems like the positive benefits of this, other than getting them out there and just being able to say, well, we played a full season, is fairly minimal in this case, given both all we know and all we don't know. The Canucks players, uh, I mean, we're now up to 20 players, including taxi squad guys who have, uh, you know, tested positive here and yep. three coaches. And on the support staff side, my understanding is that there's currently uh, one sort of concern, uh, a, a guy who's sort of in that gray area of being retested to confirm, but clearly the level of transmission with, within, you know, equipment staffers, medical staffers, training staff, PR staff, people who are around the team but are not participating in athletic on-ice activity unmasked, like, mm -hmm. the, like the other groups, is significantly lower, which suggests that the ice surface itself uh, was sort of the main vector within the Canucks. Uh, that suggests to me that in terms of workplace risk for the NHL in, in this, you know, with the P1 spreading in Western Canada... Um, that it's really high. How do you think that could that understanding could interact with vaccine distribution, particularly as it applies to you know specifically at risk workplaces? I, it's a good question. There's a lot of different factors that uh, you know teams and provincial governments are going to have to consider there for the question of on ice you know it's uh, th that uh, th if your working theory is this happened while on the ice it's entirely plausible when you consider you know we hear all right p1 is about 1.5 to 2.2 times more efficient in spreading right so mm -hmm. whereas old covid we have enough evidence at this point that yeah, let's say you're in a team environment and one person gets it, maybe three or four or five other people have gotten it. We've seen that in a few different cases, right, in a few different teams around professional and minor hockey. You increase that for the Canucks, maybe there's two players that have, that originally had it. Yeah, this the math checks out in a way where it's like this is very plausible now that suddenly something that... Uh, if one player had it and you had a couple practices or games, it would be relatively minor in spread. It's suddenly relatively major in spread. In terms of the question for distributing it, you know, one of the problems we have so often for vaccine distribution and when we start talking about vulnerable populations or groups of people that can quickly spread is it's a long list. And mm -hmm. part of the reason in British Columbia why originally they were so insistent of no, we're only doing this by age. We're just going to go down the list one after one, and we're not going to deviate, is because uh, you can say, well, t we have to vaccinate teachers. And then grocery store clerks say, well, 
why not us as well? And then people in food processing areas say, well, why not us? And all of them have perfectly legitimate reasons for, get, for getting it. And you can't really put a point system on who is more vulnerable or less. Now, with the introduction of the AstraZeneca vaccine in BC, we've been able to create this sort of separate Pro parallel program of vaccination where we are able to go through some of those high-risk groups now. Uh, th there's around 300,000 people on it. You could add 30 people to, who play for the Vancouver Canucks and around them to that and not mess up supply questions. If you're doing that for every hockey team, major, minor, amateur in the mm. entire province, then the numbers start to add up. Then you might start to have questions over what is still, for the most part, a voluntary nonprofit activity people are doing. And again, when you look at the vaccine, when you look at the vaccine, the very good news is there's very little evidence at this point that P1, for all that it does to transmit more, uh, that it's ineffective against the the vaccine. It still shows to prevent death and the worst uh, illnesses. Some people still do get it. There hasn't been quite as much data around it, but it doesn't seem that uh, suddenly you have P1 vaccines don't work on you. And based on the supply numbers we're hearing, everyone in British Columbia who's eligible will get a vaccine by Canada Day, so long as we get that supply coming in. So what I would say prob the prob probable answer is that it doesn't make a lot of sense to give it to all hockey teams and that waiting for another two months, and I know it sucks constantly hearing just wait a little bit longer, might be the course of action. It's going to be very harried for the next few weeks as we deal with this variant, but you know, the overall chart of vaccinations is still generally positive. Yeah. And I, I want to come full circle back to the role that the Canucks could have to play in terms of uh, spreading awareness and sort of reemphasizing the need for vigilance in the short term, because when the NHL signed off on the, or when the NHL, when the local health authorities signed off on the protocols that would govern this season and permit the Canucks to play in Vancouver, Part of the compromise was to have the Canucks play a role in terms of spreading awareness, doing PSAs, advocating for mask wearing and distancing and, you know, uh, bigger spaces, fewer faces. When ha have you had an indication that the authorities themselves are looking at this Canucks outbreak and considering that angle, um, you know, in the near term as, as the Canucks grapple with this? You know, right now, honestly, the, the government is dealing with so many logistical things about this sudden wave happening that I don't think it's on the top of their priority list. I haven't heard that to that effect. But I do think in the next uh, few weeks, if all of the, the Canucks do uh, recover fairly well, there's a tremendous opportunity to, you know, you talk about how the... the They've been asked to do public awareness and PSAs. That's been fairly passive uh, at, at this point, I might argue. And, you know, when there's uh, hmm. games on the line, there's other priorities. But there's a real opportunity there to get these guys out there in the media to do lots of social media stories about what it was like having uh, the, the virus why they need to get vaccinated very quickly and all the things they can do in their day-to-day -day lives to make sure that they don't transmit, particularly with this variant here, particularly when we're so close to having the opportunity for everyone to vaccinate. Will they? I mean, we will have to see, but... 
there is, given the high-profile nature of these guys, a chance here to do something that could really break through to maybe audiences that have been skeptical about this virus for the last year? A fairly heavy subject matter for a podcast that usually is focused on the events on the ice. But look, we reflect what's going on with this hockey club, and right now uh, the news side has taken over. Uh, But let's just lighten things a little bit here as we finish up, because... Uh, It is 2021. It didn't look like there was going to be playoff hockey for the Vancouver Canucks uh, even before this COVID outbreak, and who knows where the season goes from here. But Justin, uh, let's jump in the time machine, go back 10 years, because I think we're sort of on the leading edge right now of a whole lot of retrospection of the run to the 2011 Stanley Cup final. Where were you through all of that? Like, were you here in Vancouver? Yeah, I was here in Vancouver. I was at UBC. I was running the campus newspaper at the, the UBC. Uh, I, I remember Game 7 against uh, Chicago when they score, when the Blackhawks scored with like <laughs> two minutes left in the third period immediately going. I was watching in the pit pub. Uh, yeah, that was its wow. real name, kids. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and <laughs> I immediately went to the bar after, as soon as it got to the intermission, uh, and there was a line that basically stretched out the pit to get a beer because everyone was so depressed. I got uh, a double (laughs) shot of Jack Daniels. I only got it as soon as the first overtime began, sat down, Burroughs basically immediately scores. And then I go, well, I've got this to drink, but no, it was uh, (laughs) like getting to be a university student uh, right during that run, right after the Olympics was certainly, you know, bucket list type stuff, even though, yeah, we try not to remember exactly how it ended up. Justin, what, when in, in your Canucks fandom, I mean, being a university student during that 2011 run is pretty great. But w- w- when, what's the moment? What's the moment that you reflect on and, and are like, that was when I became a Canucks fan? When, when did you get hooked? Uh, I mean, like, I was seven year old, years old for the 94 Cup run. So that was sort of seminal right. in its uh, own sense, right? But in terms of becoming like a, a giant, giant fan, it would have had to be West Coast Express era because mm. that was. You know, when I w- when you're seven or eight, these are guys buried, Lyndon Courtnell, who have been stars for a while. And it's not like you grew up with them because you were, you know, I was three years old when Buray came into the, the league. You don't have sort of that momentum of building with a team, right? And feeling right. that you can see them get better. And so, you know, as a young kid, it was a lot of bot- bottoming out of the, the team. Then you had the uh, Messi <laughs> era. But then seeing Naslin, Pertuzzi, Morrison, the Sedin, Kluche all sort of rise at the same time, get better and better over two or three or four years, be by the standards of dead puck hockey, a pretty exciting team and have entertaining playoff series against the Blues, against the Flames, even, you know, against the Red Wings uh, that in that first run, although it ended uh, Mm -hmm. really depressingly, that was something that, you know, got me hooked and still (laughs) has hooked me to this day. So when we come back to present time, then just as we finish up here, what do you see? I mean, there's so much talk about this core to build around, and yet uh, we know the issues with bloated contracts that are standing in the way. What do you see when you look at this group here, uh, COVID aside, uh, we'll step back, but when you look sort of bigger picture the next couple of seasons for the Vancouver Canucks? I I mean, it's frustrating. You guys uh, have brought it up time and time uh, again, and it's so difficult beating a dead horse and constantly being proven correct. But yeah, you look at... 
at this core and you look at and you project two or three years in the future and you compare it with other cup winning teams and teams that have been perennial contenders and you go, yeah, this is comparable. This tracks out. You can build an incredibly good team around these pieces that that you have from Hughes to Pedersen to Demko to Besser all the way down. It's those other pieces that you're contributing positive value on the third and fourth line and the second and third uh, D lines that really make the difference. And it's not there to yet. It may never come. But, you know, that's the thing that both uh, makes you excited to watch the games and keeps you up at night with anxiety, worrying whether you're just wasting another <laughs> three, four years of fandom to, to going is the best it's going to be a second round uh, game seven against the Knights. Well, terrific insight uh, on the COVID front. Uh, great work over the last 12 months, 12 plus months yeah, now. Yeah, thank you, man. Uh, really appreciate you sort of stepping out and joining us here uh, on the VanCast. So, Justin, thanks so much for doing this. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Thomas. I just want to add, too, before we let Justin go, uh, that if you haven't read his story uh, on, you know, that was celebrating sort of Autism Awareness right. Day, uh, it's called It's Important to Tell More Stories About Autism, Including My Own just a tremendous, like a must-read piece, and I highly recommend all VanCast listeners go to the cbc.ca website and check that out. Hey, thanks, Thomas. That's Justin McElroy from CBC, and again, if you're not following him on Twitter, you ought to for all of the latest on COVID in this province. It's at J underscore McElroy, M-C-E-L-R-O-Y. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right. Um, no games being played, and so we don't know uh, where this is going to go for the Canucks. Uh, originally, there were the four, and then the weekend games now uh, in Edmonton. They've rescheduled, so that Calgary's going to play Edmonton, so that Hockey Night has uh, a back end of its double header. Uh, so you can scratch those games against the Oilers. It's looking more and more like if the Canucks do, in fact, play again, this seven-game road trip is going to be wiped out completely. Like It wouldn't shock me if the next time the Canucks play, and again, it's an if right now, uh, would be the home games that they had originally planned for the middle of the month. They got the Leafs and they've got the Ottawa Senators, and we'll see how that all plays out. But I was doing some math here because I got time on my hands and there are no games being played. So I tallied up our high stakes bet. Well, there is one stake that's only available by special request. Uh, we call it uh, sirloin a lot, it's uh, the size of a boogie board. Ooh, I'll have that one. And a drink? Meatballs. Very good, sir. That if the season is completed right mm-hmm. now, if they don't play another game, you would win by five goals. Nice. 
I know. So I need games. Well, I selfishly, <laughs> I, I need games to be. I played. also want games to be played because it would signal a return to normalcy and and indicate that everyone's sure. made it through. But but you know that's also uh, good to know. I'll look forward to enjoying my meat. Um, because look, at this point, you know, I'm going to win anyway, but you know, it would be nice. I would, I would much rather win with a full 57. Like I would much rather win. Now, have you tried extrapolating for 56 and then counting it out? I have not. We should try that too. We should try that too. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get on that. We'll do another update. We, we, I mean, we have three podcasts. It is a short week, so we'll have time. Uh, to dive into what it looks like extrapolated as well. Because I think we should do that. I, I don't think the Canucks are done for the season. I, I think the plan is for them to get back. I just don't see how it's practical for them to play 56. And anyway, I'm not expecting we'll have clarity on that this week. Just because it's Tuesday now. An- another player has tested positive. Uh, we'll have to wait, I think, for the club to go 48 hours without a, without a positive test, without an additional positive before we can really start to grind into gear at looking at what the next two, three weeks, uh, six weeks look like for this team. And, and then, of course, there's the NHL trade deadline coming up six days from now. And it was already going to be the most complicated deadline in NHL history for the Canucks. Um, but now you're also dealing with a, an outbreak that's running concurrently with it. Clearly, clearly what what's happened at Rogers Arena over the past week has sapped a ton of the attention of senior hockey ops officials as they've grappled with this and coordinated with the league and coordinated with the health authorities. So, you know, I, I have no idea what to expect. And, uh, you know, I'll also I'm not really in the mood to crow about uh, the need to have been perhaps more proactive five weeks ago. Um, the way that I was expecting to sort of dis- discuss this deadline 10 days ago anyway, um, just because of what's happened and how terrible, you know, it is really to grapple with. So we'll see what that looks like for the Canucks over the next six days. We'll track it this week. But man, what a what a brutal situation for the hockey club we cover, JPAT. Yeah. Now, speaking of brutal situations, and we won't go too deep here, but did I see you taking the L on the Calgary Flames? Yeah, it's time. It's t- it's time. I mean, look, I still think on true talent that they're way better than this, but they haven't put it together and they're out of time. They're out of time. They're out of runway and they're out of time and they're out of runway, even with Gallagher and Carey Price looking like they might be out for a bit. You know, things have shaped up that if the Calgary Flames had like gathered four more points and if the Edmonton Oilers had held on against the Montreal Canadiens last night, you know, I'd be like, oh, look, like my Calgary Flames take st- it's still kicking. But no, I just think they're done. I just don't think there's enough puck stopping. I think they've managed to get the least possible out of Markstrom and Riddick. I don't think they have enough time to sort of change the narrative or flip the script here. And as such, yeah, I don't think they're going to make the playoff push I expected all along. And wild, like it's wild, but that's where they're at, despite, you know, a level of a level of and depth of talent that really should have made them the second or third best team in this North division. Uh, I think that organization's in for an off season of serious introspection and, and it'll be going on against the backdrop of an expansion process that they are woefully badly positioned for. Like they're going to lose another good piece and yikes, like just yikes. That is a bad spot to be in. I think right now. Yeah. I mean, they've lost, uh, what is it? I think it's uh, eight of nine, nine of 11. Yeah. And you can't afford that over a 56-game season. We saw that with the Canucks in February, right? Like, right, that's exactly. it. Yeah, no, and 
and Calgary's played 40 games now. Like, they've played, for the longest time, the Canucks have played more than anybody. Now it's Calgary that's the 40-game mark, so they only have 16 games to go. You know, that's a maximum of 32 points. They're not getting all of them. No, it's over for them as well. I mean, basically now, by default, the Montreal Canadiens can sort of just limp to the finish line, yeah. and they will, uh, they'll round out the, the playoff field in this uh, Northern Division. Uh, if you're looking for other pot options here at The Athletic, Jim Rutherford joins Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebron on this week's two-man advantage edition of The Athletic Hockey Show, so you can check that out. And we always say check out our comment section for each podcast episode at The Athletic app, and rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. And if you're not already a subscriber, go to theathletic.com slash VanCast and receive a subscription for just $3.99 a month. I want to thank Justin McElroy of the CBC for stopping by and joining us on VanCast. Two more editions before we're through. We'll continue to monitor the Canucks and the COVID situation and also uh, more talk as we work our way to next Monday's NHL trade deadline. So lots ahead uh, this week for you here uh, on the VanCaster Drancer. It's J-Pat as always. Thanks so much for your support. You're listening to the VanCast of The Athletic from TheAthletic.com.